From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's really easy to be cynical right now and to feel uncertain about the future. Today, an injection of hope. We'll discuss a new survey of American identity. Irrespective of people's race or indeed their party affiliation, most Americans say that their American identity matters to them. It's an important part of who they are. And most Americans, about three quarters, say they're grateful to be an American and to live in this country. How might that help knit us closer together? Plus, why the U.S. isn't alone when it comes to some of its most existential challenges. Then at the Aspen Ideas Festival, visionary students present an idea to improve mental health. We see each other every day, but we didn't communicate as much as we should have. So we just felt that if we were just kind to the next person, it would just make us feel better inside. If you have a car that you've been meaning to get rid of, just sitting around in your driveway or garage, you can clear out that space and make a difference at the same time by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is easy and safe, and your donation can be handled online without any face-to-face interaction. The proceeds of your gift will help financially support CPR. Start the process now on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Americans want their country to live up to that motto, but they don't necessarily see it happening. That is one takeaway from a massive survey conducted for a group called More in Common. Its mission, boiled down, is to save democracy by better understanding the forces driving us apart and by hunting for common ground. The organization's director of research, Stephen Hawkins, is based in Denver. And Stephen, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. All right. You recently surveyed a diverse group of 2,500 adults in this country, different politics, races, ages. And you find, indeed, that there is a difference between what they see in their country and what they want in their country. Say more about that gap. You know, if you ask Americans, what are the words that best describe the country today? And you just give them a list of positive and negative adjectives. What you find is that Americans overwhelmingly pick words like divided, chaotic, and intolerant. Those are really the things that seem to define the moment today. But if you ask them, what would they like to see the country defined by? It's totally the inverse picture where we see that people overwhelmingly say they want a country that's defined by its unity, that's hardworking, and that's responsible. And so we just see this chasm between the country that we idealize and the country that we observe. Does it give you some hope as someone who works on unity that at least the desire is there? Yes, certainly. Um, In my field of polarization and division, there are now voices that are articulating the possibility of civil war or of the country breaking up into smaller pieces through secessionist movements. And so there is a conversation about the country further fragmenting to see that Americans on the whole don't desire that and instead want unity is an encouraging sign. Another encouraging sign is that the United States is not alone in these challenges. Hmm. We've asked the same question across Europe 
and we find that Europeans are also struggling with feelings of division and overwhelmingly characterize their countries as divided. And so we're working together across, more in common is working across Europe and the United States to find solutions and to work with partners. Well, that's interesting. And I wonder if, to some extent, this is the result of a global pandemic. Isn't that one thing we all have in common? The pandemic had moments, flickers of unity and people coming together at the early stages. And then in the United States, we saw that a lot of that unraveled quickly in 2020 in the summer following the death of George Floyd or the murder of George Floyd, and then the tense 2020 election. But the pandemic is now very much in the rearview mirror for most countries as they are overwhelmingly concerned now with cost of living Mm -hmm. uh, and inflation. Yeah, you found that uh, for sure in this country among the thousands you interviewed. Now, this is not inherently a political poll. You're not testing candidates or party preference, but you did ask about parties in general. And what did you hear about people's sense of political parties? Well, sadly, we find that most Americans lack faith in political parties to be the vehicle for change in the country, to bring about that greater sense of unity and to improve the country's trajectory. We found that among independents, 85% said that neither party make them feel hopeful about the country's future. And independents are the largest share of Americans. There are more independents than there are Republicans or Democrats. And that's, but true, even among, that's true in Colorado as well. Indeed. But even among Democrats and Republicans, people who self-describe as belonging to one of the parties, over 60% of them say that neither party makes them hopeful about the future. And so what we see is partisanship is defined more by the group that you're afraid of and that you dislike. And so people identify with the other group that's fighting against them, but they're not particularly excited or enthusiastic about even their own party. I think I've heard that referred to as negative partisanship. And, you know, this gets to the idea that people see the greatest threat to the country, not as a foreign aggressor, but as something from within our own boundaries, right? Yeah, we ask this question because, especially in the context of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and Russia being America's historic foe in the 20th century, we wanted to see if the United States felt that Russia or China or some other external enemy terrorists, terrorist groups, might be seen as the greatest threat, but really they don't. Overwhelmingly, Americans say that the biggest threat to the country comes from inside. That's 81% of Americans say it's an internal threat. And it is the other political party that people are referring to very often when they think of that existential threat. Um, 86% of Republicans say that Democrats represent an existential threat to the country. And so even though we want unity, we do see so often our political opponents as potentially risking the future of the country with their current plans, policies, and behaviors. What was that figure the other way around? How do Democrats perceive Republicans? 81% of Democrats say that Republicans are significant or existential threat to the country. So it's pretty similar among both groups. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Stephen Hawkins, who's based in Denver. He's the director of research for More in Common. It's a global nonprofit that works to reduce divisions in democracies. 
And they've surveyed 2,500 adults in this country uh, just recently with the idea of asking them about their identity, their American identity in particular, what divides us, what unites us. It seems to me that e pluribus unum depends on sharing a set of facts, of truths. And yet we have seen foreign disinformation campaigns and with lies about election security, we've seen, you know, domestic examples of misinformation as well. How do you think this notion of having the same set of basic facts plays into this whole conversation about unity? It's a development. When we started with this work in the United States in 2016, we were really focused a lot on competing values. Hmm. And what that means is we see the same information, but the way we interpret what values need to be prioritized differed. And so that's like, well, what should the scale of government be? How much responsibility should individuals have versus how much should the government provide? That's a conventional partisan division. But you're right to point out that we now see something which the academic term for it might be epistemic fracturing, which is that we have now broken and competing realities, not just competing value systems. The competing value systems still are there, but now we have this added layer of not having the same information. Mm -hmm. It really came to the forefront during the pandemic because we saw in 2021 that the most basic features of our reality, who should the president be? Are the vaccines safe for this global pandemic? Is climate change a real problem? These are some of the most fundamental features of our reality. And they're binary, right? Who is the president? Are the vaccines safe? Or it's relatively binary. Uh, and we couldn't agree on those. It's a real challenge. And across the bridging and division space, there are groups that are working on creating media information products that allow people to see the degrees of validity in competing perspectives and that are trying to reverse the partisan direction that the media landscape has gone in. Um, but it's a significant problem. I don't think we're on track to fix that problem as a society at the moment. Let's focus on one solution you propose. Um, quoting your report on American identity, we find that personal stories about family history are a more powerful way to break through us versus them narratives. How so? When we talk about an ideological conflict, what we're really saying is there are competing stories about the country. And one story about the country is exceptionalism. And that's more of a conservative story. Mm -hmm. And the other, the competing progressive story is a critical view on the United States, such as the 1619 Project, viewing the United States as being founded in its flaws rather than founded in its exceptionalism. But what we find is that when we ask people about their stories, they don't allow for a simple reduction to one narrative. Instead, what they say is that their story, their family story, might be one, for instance, of exclusion and discrimination. In fact, we find that majorities of Black and Hispanic and indeed Asian Americans say that their family stories are ones that are defined by exclusion and discrimination. But they also say that their family stories are defined by an opportunity to work hard and pass along a better life to the next generation. And they say that their family stories are also defined by a search for opportunity and a better life. And so what we see is that when you ask people about their own story and their own family, 
they reject this simple binary that hmm. the United States is either good or bad. And they're able to tell the competing threads that comprise their own family's background. That's interesting. Uh, maybe the point for me there, the takeaway for me and, and perhaps for others, is when you start a conversation with someone, uh, maybe starting with politics immediately uh, or some hot button issue isn't the place to start. But this notion of digging deeper into their story might be the place to find more common ground. Is that what I hear you saying? I think that there's a lot of common ground to be found there. And I think that irrespective of people's race or indeed their party affiliation, most Americans say that their American identity matters to them. It's an important part of who they are. And most Americans, about three quarters, say they're grateful to be an American and to live in this country. And so I think we diverge when it comes to the degree to which we criticize the country or we elevate it. But there is a sense that belonging to this country matters. And then from there, I think there are a lot of good points of departure. Uh, what else do you plan to ask Americans this year? Because I know there are more surveys to come. Well, really what we're working on is how can we make the sense of being an American meaningful and substantive? You know, there's a sense when we ask Americans, and we've now done well over 20,000 survey completions over the last several years on these sorts of subjects. And we see that moments like September 11th really brought people together. There was a real sense that we're all Americans, we're all in this together. And it meant something at that point. The flag didn't feel like a superficial symbol and saying we were American didn't feel trite. But in these moments where there isn't that obvious external threat, it's hard to feel that sense of connection especially because we feel so threatened by the political parties within our own country. Yeah, and of course, it's strange that it, Russia, in a way, didn't become that either. It hasn't become that. Yeah, I agree. And so what we're looking to do with our next surveys is we'll be asking, what are the values that connect us to each other as Americans? And what are the aspirations for the future that we share? And can we use those to strengthen our sense of connected identity and to make appeals to fellow Americans feel powerful and have the ability to transcend our racial divisions and our partisan divisions so that we can start to make progress and chip away at the problems that worry so many of us. And are those themes then you'd like politicians, for instance, to pick up on? Yeah, absolutely. And indeed, some politicians already are picking up on these themes. In 2018, we released a report called Hidden Tribes, where we talked about the exhausted majority of two thirds of Americans that span both political parties that are fed up with division and don't feel represented in the ideological debate. And we see now that there are political candidates in Ohio and Wisconsin that are running explicitly to reach that exhausted majority. They've built their campaigns around that. Hmm. And so, yes, we hope to show a path forward where appealing to shared values, common aspirations, and building on a common sense of our, our history and what we need to learn from it can be something which politicians campaign around and which organizations that are trying to build a healthier culture can learn from. That is Stephen Hawkins of Denver, research director for the global nonprofit More in Common. We'll link to their American Identity Research Project in today's podcast at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. And we'll be right back with what a group of young people came up with when they were tasked with helping improve mental health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¿Quién somos nosotras? 
who are we? I mean, now I feel like a Mexican-American man versus just feeling like a part-time Mexican and a part-time white wannabe guy. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast, Quien Are We?, is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quien Are We? everywhere you listen. Students at a charter school in New Orleans are used to being written off. Many landed at the net charter high because they'd been arrested or expelled from a more traditional school. They may have run away from home or become parents at a young age. So what they're not so used to is being heard. And yet five of these students got a global audience recently at the Aspen Ideas Festival here in Colorado. They are among the teams to win the Aspen Challenge for developing a program that uses kindness to address mental health. I'm Alexis. This is Journey, Jose, Jonathan, and Robrian. We're a team love and action. In many ways, the challenges that we chose was really personal for me because less than a year ago, I was living in the margins. Not because that's where I wanted to be or because I didn't see wrong in the choices that I was making, but because I was not driven, I was really bored, and I didn't see my full potential. Lucky, I was strong enough to see that that's not all that the world had to offer for me. And now I want to help other young adults see the same thing. Well, Alexis Allen and her coach, Valerie Baudet, spoke with my colleague, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Full disclosure, I'm actually originally from New Orleans, and I grew up between Punchatrain Park and New Orleans East. But I've been in Colorado for 10 years now, and... Louisiana and Colorado could not be more different. So my first thought is, what do you think about being in Aspen? I love it here in Aspen, but it's nothing like home. Absolutely. So what what, what stood out for you, Alexis, coming from below sea level to Colorado with mountains? Yeah, the view is amazing everywhere I turn. (laughs) That's very different for me. So let's talk about your project. It's called Love in Action. And it was rooted in the idea that being kind to others can change the way you feel about yourself. Tell us about what inspired the project. So it was mentioned that we go to an alternative school and a lot of the students at my school are not as community involved because of the circumstances that we have outside of school. So we thought that if we were just kind to everyone around us, then it would make us feel more community involved with each other like it was a sense of community to each other just us warming up because we see each other every day but we didn't communicate as much as we should have we didn't know each other as much as we should so we just felt that if we were just kind to the next person it would just make us feel better inside yeah I found that really interesting in watching your presentation how you all work so hard to bring different groups of people together who, who, as you said, would be together but not necessarily interact with each other. So what was that like to see the, the students at the talent shows and at the different meetings that you all set up? Oh, my God, it was amazing. Not only that we are all together communicating, having so much fun, my name is all across it. Like, I am one of the people who came up with this idea. I am the one of the people who was like, let's implement this. Let us, let's get everybody together. So just being the brains behind it, it being my idea, it makes me feel even better to see that 
this is what I did. I got everyone together and we loving each other. What was the process like coming up with the ideas? Like, how did you all get started? Well, we did a lot of team building, getting to know each other first. And then we decided to let's figure out the challenges. Let's throw out ideas. And then we decided what chronological ways we would attack the challenges that we, the well, the ideas that we came up with. So is the idea basically that when you create this sense of community, it in turn reduces violence in the community? Yes. Valerie, uh, what do you think about the the project and uh, and the process that these young people went through to create this campaign? It was a perfect combination of how we believe students learn the best at our uh, at our schools. We really want to just um, love students and then get out of their way uh, and let them be the leaders. And I and I think you know what what Alexis said was about our team building. You know that. For us, um, we spend a lot of time doing trust building and just building really strong relationships with each other and with our students and being vulnerable with them and allowing them to um, to show us really who they are. And I think that is uh, where the strength in this comes from. Really, they when we did those team buildings, there was a there was a conversation we had where we asked this is before we even knew what the challenges were. And we asked the students what what do you think the world needs? And um, they said, you know, things would be better if people would just be kind to each other. And so our whole sort of idea became rooted in that. And that came directly from them. So, yeah, just like that Beatles song, all we need is love, right? <laughs> I'm sure that predates you, Alexis, but uh, there there are some songs out there like that. Uh, so, Alexis, tell us about some of the projects that you all actually put together for this campaign? So we did multiple things. We had a letter writing campaign. We partnered with a mentor from Friends and Families of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children. And he helped us get our letters to those incarcerated individuals. And he is now helping us learn to facilitate a Know Your Rights workshop so we can teach it to students in our school and eventually others. We also had a buddy program with middle schoolers who has been expelled from their prior schools. Um, Within our school, we also did the talent show. We had a kindness card where everybody write cards to each other. We're dropping in a basket and your cards will be delivered to you later on in the week. We had rock painting. We had button making. A lot of stuff to just bring us together. And when you brought everyone together, what happened? It was just a bunch of love. The energy <laughs> was amazing. So at our school, we always have like awards and we're we're always like our, our teachers and staff try as hard as they can to acknowledge all of the things about us, like not just academically, but just our personalities, period. But with the students seeing that for each other, like us noticing each other's personalities was just amazing. It was a new feeling. Wow. So do you think this project could translate into other communities? Do you think this could be taken to other cities and have the same effect? Yes. So we have, we are planning to continue working within our city, just keeping it local. We do want to expand this 
worldwide. I am actually looking to become an advocate for New Orleans marginalized youth and eventually youth around the world because we are not looked at as let's hear what they have to say. So just me being in a room, well, at first it started as a room, but now I'm talking on radio and hey, I'm ready to get it out there that the youth need help and I'm here to talk about it. What stood out to me particularly about your team is that you all are from an alternative school. And this is a school with students that have been um, to a large degree um, removed from a traditional setting. And uh, I also, being from New Orleans, I'm familiar with the other schools, uh, Ben Franklin and Frederick Douglass, who also presented at Aspen Ideas. And I'm just curious, how did it feel being from an alternative school? Did you feel like you had a little bit more to prove? And did you feel like you had a little bit more pressure to represent? So, actually, I felt like we were the most special because we don't think of alternative as ways most people think of it. It's just that means that we're different. Like, our schedule is different. We're more flexible. We don't wear uniforms. Like, everything about us is different. So that just means our ideas and the solutions that we came up with were going to be as sustainable as different can get us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I heard your team actually faced insults while doing this work. Yes. So as you mentioned, that by us being an alternative school, it probably was like hard for us to have a mindset as everyone else because we are different. And that is the ways that everyone else looked at us, though we didn't look at ourselves that way. So, as I mentioned, we since we think of um, alternative as just meaning different, a lot of people in our city think of alternative as those students are just running free, just going wild. They don't have a sense of direction and don't know exactly what they want. But that's not the case at all, because a lot of us, a lot of students who attend that have been put out of school or incarcerated or had children and those are their circumstances but most of us on my team actually left traditional school because we wanted to excel and we knew that the alternative school would give us more opportunities hmm. what I found interesting is you called it a counter narrative for the violence in our city can yes. you speak to that so when we started to think about this whole thing, we thought of what way are we viewed? How do they look at us? And that's the narrative. The When we think they think of New Orleans youth, they think of taking people's cars, robbing old people, just making really poor decisions. And we feel like it's our job to change the narrative because we are the, the group of people that they're looking at. Wow. So, Valerie, uh, what did it feel like to see them on that stage presenting. How, how did that feel to see this all come together? You know, I have a, a, a huge amount of pride. My heart is really full for these for these students. Um, I just, the there was a moment after the initial presentation in New Orleans when I was being interviewed just to talk about how things went. And uh, uh, the interviewer asked me what is, it, is there one more thing you'd like to say? And I turned and looked, and actually it was Alexis. I said, what should I say? And Alexis <laughs> said, that you love us. <laughs> and I said, oh. you know what? That is that is really true. That That's sort of how I felt just looking at them is, you know, there's this huge amount of love that we that we all share. And I think um, that spirit is uh, is there 
just carrying forward and it's uh, going to carry these young people and the people they uh, they care about. We're also joined today by Katie Fitzgerald, who is the director of the Aspen Challenge. And Katie, I'm just wondering, how does it feel to see how this work has impacted these young people? It's it's absolutely incredible. I mean, you know, to, to echo Valerie, my heart is full, overflowing. Um, I just feel honored and humbled. Um, I'm just eternally grateful to every single young person who steps up and rises to the occasion because 100% of this work is youth-led. So we really just get out of the way. We say we kind of provide a platform and we challenge young people to rise to the occasion. And 100% of the times they do. And this particular school and this particular project, I remember I personally went down um, and met with this school about halfway through the project. And when they started listing off all of the incredible things that they were doing, I was completely blown away. I mean, I had to pick up my chin off the table saying, oh my gosh, how did you guys find the time to do this? And it's the truth of the matter is they made the time. This is important. And, you know, and as like contradicting the narrative about how people view these young people is essential. We need these young people. We need these educators to change the world. These are our leaders, um, not the leaders of tomorrow. They're the leaders of today. So um, I'm just humbled and grateful and, um, you know, just absolutely full of love. And I, I love this project, love this work and enjoy meeting every single one of these young people and these educators every year. How important do you feel a platform like this for young people to present at Aspen Ideas? How do you feel about how that elevates student voices? That's a great question. And, um, you know, full disclosure, I'm completely biased because I feel that there's not enough of this. I feel that the ideas that our young people have are fresh, new, innovative, um, fearless. Um, they don't know the hurdles and they don't know some of the things about society that will bring them down, that will cause them problems. So I just feel like the fresh new ideas that our young people bring to the table is inspiring and enlightens us all. So I feel that this is absolutely the place for these young people to be able to, to spread the word, not only about the incredible work they're doing and the issues that they face in their communities, but just the simple bright ideas that young people bring to the table. Um, I just be believe young people deserve a seat at the table when we're discussing anything, but most certainly when we're discussing issues they face on a daily basis. Um, other people making decisions for young people isn't working. <laughs> and so I just feel like we need young people at the table to make make good decisions um, to live better, fruitful lives. So, Alexis, what would you say you've learned about yourself in this process? That I am, I have a stronger mind than I want to believe, that I impact people more than I know. And I have a very big effect on everyone that I have conversations with, that I come in contact with. I feel like even if I'm in a room with you, just sitting next to you, you can feel the energy off of me. I remember in the video that set up your presentation, you talked about how this really helped you see your own potential for the first time. Yes. It must be a good feeling. Yes. A lot of stuff. I, I've learned a lot of stuff about myself within the last three days. 
Like just having conversations with people and talking about stuff that I already know about, it just informs me like, dang, I actually know this stuff. And then hearing that other people, very important people, know a lot about this same stuff make me feel even more special. Like, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. That's got to be an awesome feeling. So, yes. Thank you so much for joining us on Colorado Matters. What a fascinating project and I want to follow these students and see what happens going forward. Amazing. Thank Thank you you so much. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield speaking with Alexis Allen, a student at the Net Charter High School in New Orleans. We also heard from her coach, Valerie Baudet, and Katie Fitzgerald, director of the Aspen Challenge. Alexis's team won a prize for designing a program that uses kindness to address mental health. I'm Ryan Warner. And you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. July 6, 1924, a funeral procession in what is now Johnstown. 200 mourners are startled by four large explosions. A meteor has streaked into the Earth's atmosphere and breaks up. Sounds like machine gun fire, whistling, screeching, rumbles, roars, and the smell of sulfur fills the air, leading some to think it's the end of the world. In fact, those mourners were rare witnesses to a meteorite fall. 27 pieces of the Johnstown meteorite were recovered over a 10-mile area. The largest, more than 50 pounds, embedded itself nearly six feet deep into Colorado soil. The rock had interplanetary origins from Vesta, the second largest and brightest asteroid in the solar system, more than 100 million miles away, somewhere between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The actors at Buntboard Theatre Company in Denver are taking a well-deserved break. They recently wrapped their 50th original show. Their shows are also really original and smart and funny. Back in April, I met the five founding members who remain with the troupe, Brian Colonna, Hannah Duggan, Eric Edborg, Aaron Rollman, and Samantha Schmitz. They warned me, quote, sometimes all five of us are a lot. That sounds true. <laughs> yeah, that sounds true? Yeah. Yeah, it feels true, and we're not even <laughs> yeah. a minute in. Yeah. <laughs> I recall, this is years ago now, a show that y'all did, and it was Kafka. Mm-hmm. On ice. On ice. I was hoping you'd fill in the blank in chorus, in unison. Tell me the story of how Kafka was on ice and it was not in a super chilled environment. Yeah, we were teaching at a school and one of the students said that his father sells synthetic ice, that he said he had an ice skating rink in his backyard and we were like, that is not possible. This is a child lying to us. Yeah, that his father sold synthetic ice immediately. We were like, okay, well, we need that, and we're going to make a show. And the first thing that we said was Kafka on ice. And then we questioned <laughs> it, because we were like, is there a better person to put on, in an ice capades type environment? <laughs> and then we were like, no, there's not. He's the perfect. He's the perfect person to put in an ice capades environment. So we went with it. Well, and that means that you could skate on stage. Yes. Does, yes. does anyone remember the feeling of that? Yeah, well... We don't know how to ice skate, so, <laughs> so the feeling was a lot of fear. Um, 
But it was, we are not good skaters, but we could stay on our feet, kind of. We became competent skaters. Yes, yes, competent is a good word. And it was awesome. It's not as slick and it's not as quick, mm -hmm. but it's like this weird slow motion skate. It holds you a little bit tighter. Yeah. And you want your skates to be a little bit duller. Yeah. To work well. And as it. it turns out, it helps to spray armor all mm -hmm. on the plastic, but you may spray armor all on anything and it'd be much slicker. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Hair. Hair. <laughs> actor's eyeballs. Yes. yes. Yeah. What does that tell us, that kind of smart but absurd Tension. What does that tell us about all of you as founders of a theater company, Sam? I mean, I think that we all are always working between the idea of challenging an audience as well as welcoming them. So the absurdist nature is just like anyone can come see a Bumport show and you might get different things from it because of quoting you, the smartness of it. <laughs> <laughs> I see. That you wouldn't use the word smart. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a lot of research that we put into stuff, so we might seem smarter than we would have been had you just talked to us about any given subject before we wrote a show. Yeah, about. it's not the go-to word when you describe each other, you know? Okay. But there are layers, you were saying. There's a playful nature to what we do as well as uh, intellectual nature. I asked each of you to do some homework mm -hmm. and think of a memorable line from one of your 50 original plays share that line with us and place it into a little bit of context. I think it might be a good way to do a kind of round robin of 50 plays. And how many years? When was the company founded? 2000. 2000. The first show was done in college in 1998, but the nonprofit was founded in 2000. This all grew out of your time at Colorado College together, correct? Right. Yeah. Boy, you seem like a group the teacher would want to separate to me. <laughs> okay, who wants to, who wants to go first? with a line from the history. I can go first. Okay, go ahead, Erin I can go Roman. first. Um, so this is from The Book Handlers, and my character talks about raisins a lot, and she is asked, does she prefer regular raisins or golden raisins? And she replies, what am I, a queen? Regular, <laughs> goldens cost more, you know? And that is her response. And of course, later, there are some large raisins that come to life and start talking, naturally. Of course. Naturally. Yeah. But Goldens are a little out of her price range. Out of her price range. She's not a queen. And, and so what was that show about? Uh, that show is about a group of people who distress. The, the service that they offer is distressing books, your books, so it looks like you've read them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, because people use books, I think, sometimes as an intellectual prop. We saw a lot of that in the Zoom meetings of the early yes. pandemic. Yes. Look at all the books I say that I've read. <laughs> okay. Who has a good line? Um, I can go. Okay. Go um, ahead, Hannah. It's actually a lyric from our show, Jugged Rabbit Stew, which is about a magic rabbit who is not a nice rabbit and is upset and depressed and... In the end, he ends up killing himself and making himself into a jugged rabbit stew to feed the people that he has collected because he collects things because he's mad that people collect rabbit's feet. Oh. So in return, he kind of just takes things from people. But the line is that if you are what you eat, who better to embody than a truly magic bunny made of only white meat? <laughs> and it's at the end when we finally get to eat him a, a delicious stew. And it rhymes. It yeah. rhymes, yes. Because it's a lyric in a song. It's, it's a, a musical. We, it's a musical that we did with Adam Stone. 
who is a local mm, con- He's a musician. Musician. <laughs> I wanted to say conductor. You could say composer. A composer, yeah, yes. Musician and composer. See how smart we are? Uh-huh. <laughs> I was getting like rabbit equine vibes or equus vibes. Yeah. It's yeah. like equus for bunnies. Less nudity. Less, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, who has a line from a show? I'll go. Brian Colonna. So my line is from The Rembrandt Room, which was our first and only so far one-woman show. And Aaron played a museum security guard who stood in front of one painting, Rembrandt's painting of Denea. The whole show is a reflection on just that painting and the security guard's experience looking at the same piece of art every day. Oh, And so she says at one point, some of the things that I say that sound like facts, if you think about them, they're not. Like a lot of things I say sound factual, but I'm just the one talking. It's not a prerequisite to know what you're talking about. So, Oh, that's a prescient line given given today's (laughs) politics. And I I, I think I'd seen that one a lot. Often we're all in the show and we step out to play the role of director when we're not in a scene. But that one, since only Aaron was on stage, I got to watch it over and over and over again. So it sticks in my head more when you ask, think of a line from a past show. It's easier for me to remember what I liked from something. I think it has to do with our body of work too, because we love an unreliable narrator. You know, like, of course you shouldn't believe everything that (laughs) that you see said on stage. Uh, And we like to remind people of that. And so that was a show that was entirely Aaron Rollman memorizing what, an hour's worth of... Yeah, it runs about an hour, 20 minutes, yeah. Oh, that makes me nervous. Do you think that people who guard art are bored? Um, I don't know. We had some docents come to the show, and they said to, they said to me afterwards, how did you know that that's what it's like? And I think they were talking about the fact that I portray a certain amount of boredom and a certain amount of like, what are we going to do next? And I was like, well, I just think that that's what I assumed. Like if you're just (laughs) standing there and I would think that sometimes it's boring. Yeah. Because I don't think you're really encouraged to get into conversations, long conversations with patrons. About plantalism. Yeah. And that that would be a thing that keeps your day moving if you got to do that, right? But I don't I always feel really grateful for those folks because I think this can't be an easy job. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, do you have a line? Yes. uh, My line is from our very first play called Quixote, which was a parallel of the Don Quixote story, but with a professor and his student trying to spread the word of Don Quixote and the set comprised completely of uh, rolling three rolling chalkboards that the backdrops would be drawn on live and erased. Oh, uh, as the, as you were the doing the set in real time. Yes. Mm-hmm. There were some preset things before the show, but a lot of it, somebody's back behind the scene drawing it so it can flip over and show the next scene. And the first line from my first show is doing what? Something. How? And that's the first line. And anytime you say doing, sometimes yesterday when I said it, Hannah just went, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> I just have to go doing. And go, what? Something. It's both How? of an earworm, but also I kind of think of it as that's what we do here. You know, we're doing what? We have to make a new show. What? What is it? We're something, and how are we going to do it? So it's like the most basic framework of what we have been doing here for over 20 years now, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. It's also poetic that the first show should be quixotic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm sure there were times where it felt 
like you were tilting at windmills, Sam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> still, it's still, still yes, I agree. We, uh, in the pandemic, maybe. Yeah, in the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, trying to remember how to do theater. Every time we make a show, it feels like we've not made a show before, even after 50 shows in 20 years. Is that beginner's mind? I don't know. It feel, it's It has a lot to do with the fact that we're always trying to make things different. We're not trying to do a similar show ever. So... Each time there's some challenge for us as well as for the audience or whatever, whether it is the theater magic part of it or just like discovering the characters in a way that because they're all written by us, we, we clearly have one, one massive viewpoint and trying to diversify that viewpoint is a, one of the challenges that we work with. And no two shows ever feel the same. And that's wonderful, but it must be exhausting for you. Yeah. Do you have a line? I do have a line. My line is from our version of Hamlet, which was a three-man version of Hamlet called Something is Rotten. And the quote is actually a Shakespeare line. It is, I'll take the ghost's word for a thousand pounds, if it's the daily double. And... The first part is Hamlet, and then the Daily Double part is just the addition from Julius, who is one of the characters on stage. But uh, it's my favorite line because I think of it every day when I'm watching Jeopardy and someone says, I'll take. So. so really, favorite is a strong word. It's more like this annoying thing that yeah. happens to you all the time. every day. <laughs> yes. Our conversation with the troupe at Denver's Buntport Theater continues in a moment. Coming up, what is something they haven't tried on stage but want to? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When the world changes, come to CPR News for updates on what's happening. We'll keep you connected each and every day. Just tap on your phone to listen with the Colorado Public Radio app or come to CPR.org. Let's get back into the preposterous world of Denver's Buntfort Theater Company. Preposterous for several reasons. The founders met in college decades ago. They formed a theater troupe and are still going, with 50 original productions to show for it. Preposterous as well because on their stage, space helmets and ice skates live alongside the likes of Shakespeare and Kafka. Back in April, I sat down with Brian Colonna, Hannah Duggan, Eric Edborg, Aaron Rollman, and Samantha Schmitz. What is one thing you have not achieved on this stage that you want to achieve? Oh my gosh. An underwater show. I've always wanted to do some kind of big water on tank or it looks like you're underwater. You know, not necessarily like you're hanging fish from the ceiling and going in slow motion, but actually something... Immersive, you might <laughs> oh, say. Oh, immersive theater, <laughs> which is my, uh, which I think I is think the only can... true definition of immersive theater is if it's underwater. That is my personal. But does the audience have to be underwater to call <laughs> no, it immersive? No, no, no. <laughs> please, please. I mean, it would be better if they were. But. Aaron, I don't know. Like we love to problem solve, and we love to come up with like the goofiest ways to simulate something. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastical and large and something that would be out of our budget. So to me, I feel like it's all still available to us. Like Mm. it's all conquerable. We just have to think of the right way to do it. The world is your oyster still. The world is our oyster. Brian? I'm going to joke and say that 
we've remounted some of our past work recently. And for example, my back went out during the puppeting of Tommy Lee Jones. So sometimes I think... Well, hold on. (laughs) Can we we diagram that sentence? Sure. My back went out during the puppeting of Tommy Lee Jones? (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think it needs any explanation. (laughs) We have a show called Tommy Lee Jones Goes to the Opera Alone, and it's a puppet version of Tommy Lee Jones, and he talks about his favorite opera, Turandot, which is, was unfinished by Puccini. And he, with the waitress, sort of imagines what the ending of Turandot should be. I realize that my pronunciation might make some opera right, aficionados upset. I, I, but we're going to get letters. <laughs> it's it. fine. I'll um, so uh, there's three of us puppeting Tommy Lee. Eric is voicing him, and Hannah plays the, the waitress. But I'm older than I was when we wrote it. And I was like, uh uh-huh starting to hurt and then it was out so sometimes I dream and I say to these people let's just make a show where two people are sitting in comfy chairs (laughs) talking to each other Um, no one has to hang from the ceiling no one has to be puppeted it'll just be recliners and a nice cup of tea and some chat I look forward to your production of no exit then (laughs) Hannah dinner with Andre I don't know. Like, let's just do Death of a Salesman or something. Let's just do a show that's already been written, hyper realistic. <laughs> wow. Let's just do that. That would surprise ourselves the yes, most. If we did that, we would never. But would it be fun if we did? You're just going to break tradition. Yeah. All right. Because oh, I don't think we would do it very well, but I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it might be entertaining watching us struggle through Death of a what? Salesman. Watching us try to do mm-hmm. a, an actual series. It, it would feel better to know you had a show before you opened it that was popular and people liked. Yes. The problem with writing your own and performing them and making it all is on opening night, you're like, this might be the worst thing that's ever happened. If people don't like the writing, it's our fault. If they don't like the direction, it's our fault. If they don't like the acting, it's our fault. So feeling like you had a sure thing yeah. would be a, a nice a, opening. At least it won a Pulitzer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, Sam, what do you want to achieve on this stage? I, um, I really don't know. In our early days, we did a lot of transformational magic of the sets and stuff like the chalkboards transforming into different things and such. And so in some of the reviews about Quixote specifically, they said that it's as magical as the um, helicopter landing on stage or the, Oh, in Miss Saigon, in Miss Saigon or the um, chandelier coming down through the audience in Phantom of the Opera. And I've kind of always wanted to land a helicopter on stage just because that, <laughs> that there seems... are very tiny remote control ones that are available to us for that purpose. <laughs> I'd like to just do a little workshopping and blend the helicopter idea with the underwater idea mm-hmm. with the people sitting in recliners idea <laughs> and death. Of a salesman. And we'll just say we'll just say the words from Death of a Salesman. We'll just shove it all in there. Ryan, you just got to write in credit. First show. <laughs> you just gotta You're welcome. <laughs> I'll make my own shoes for it. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to oh, us. Thank you, thank you for talking to thank us. You. Yes. Yeah, super great. Samantha Schmitz, Aaron Rollman, Eric Edborg, Hannah Duggan, and Ryan Colonna co-founded Denver's Buntport Theater. They're taking a break this month and announce their 22nd season soon. And that is Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.